Amen. Adrian Plass, in one of the books in his Sacred Diary series, talks of being worried that he will feel let down by eternity. Somehow, heaven will not live up to his expectations, to the hype or the hope. And he says, you know, if it's going to be like the worship services that he's been to, then he's really worried that he's just not going to enjoy it. And he confides this to a friend of his, a character in the book who's a neighbour and a wise, considerate old Anglican. Amazing that there are such things, eh, Lorne? <laughs> and his friend thinks for a while and then asks him, well, what do you really enjoy in life? And Adrian says, I enjoy watching cricket. He's a real cricket tragic. And his friend thinks again for a while and says, you know, let me suggest that for him, heaven would be like playing for England. Uh, Adrian Plass is English. Uh, in, a, in a deciding match in the Ashes series against Australia. And hitting the winning runs. A towering six over the boundary. And you know, as New Zealanders, we can probably relate to the elation of beating our cross-Tasman rivals at any sport. And if you're not into sports, or maybe if you're Australian, you could think of the pinnacle of your own favourite passion. Something that you just get such enjoyment out of life and extrapolate that uh, a thousand times, a million times. And in the concluding vision... In the concluding chapter of Revelation, John uses imagery from the Old Testament to explain and express the wonder of the coming consummation of God's kingdom. Imagery from the book of Ezekiel, from a, the time of the exile when Jerusalem had been destroyed like it was again in 70 AD. And with, with great, wonderful visions, he talks about the hope of a rebuilt and a renewed city as a place where God dwelt with his people. And then he uses language which picks up the whole overarching narrative of Scripture as well and paints the picture of Jesus coming again in terms of a new Eden, a new garden, a new creation, where things are restored to the way that they were always intended to in the beginning. And in that, he shows our eternal hope in Christ. Okay, let's look at Revelation chapter 22. And the chapter is really in three parts. The first five verses finish off the previous section where the new Jerusalem is described. And as I said before, John's vision uses Old Testament imagery to paint for us a wonderful picture of what it will be like. Then in the rest of the chapter, in what seems to be just a, almost a jumble of different voices, we hear Jesus speak. You see, from first to last... Revelation is a vision of the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The risen Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And then John has some concluding words which remind us that this is a prophecy, that this is apocalyptic literature, that this is a letter originally written to a specific time in a specific place. 
But boy, you know what? In those concluding words, does he apply the message and the hope of revelation to us. So we're going to look at the last things, the last one, and some last words in Revelation 22. So let's look at the last things. The chapter starts with the words we have become familiar with through the book of Revelation. Then I saw. And it's a way of showing us that this is a new vision. And here John is showing what it's like in the new Jerusalem. He's shown the eternal city of God, and he's shown it as a garden or a new Eden. And there is a river that flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb, crystal clear, living water. And this is the vision from Ezekiel chapter 47 of a river that flows through and out of the city that brought new life to the desert and even to the Dead Sea, a river that flowed out of the temple. And here we see that river giving life to the city. And in Ezekiel, it did flow out of the temple, but here God no longer needs to dwell in a temple. The throne of God is in the midst of the city. God dwells with God's people face to face because Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice to reconcile us with God. Remember, the veil in the temple was ripped in two at the crucifixion. And now we have that open communion with God through Christ. Jesus uh, says that, you know, the, the revelation says that that will be in the end, that we will be living face to face with Christ. And also Jesus had spoken uh, of coming to him and he would give life-giving water. And here we see that reality in the new Jerusalem, that life-giving water. And on the banks are the trees of life who provide different fruit each month of the year and whose leaves bring healing to the nations. And again, this is from Ezekiel's vision in chapter 47. The tree of life, of course, was the tree in the Garden of Eden that God did not want Adam and Eve to eat of after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here we see that this tree is openly available to the people of God because they have eternal life in Christ. It's a symbolic way of talking about the fact that we have that eternal life. And in Ezekiel, the trees were said to be medicinal. But here we are told that they provide healing for the nations. And John says, there will be no more curses. All the curses will be reversed. And we see a restoration of people to, be, to one another as God's people. The nations are, that have been raging against God, the nations that have been opposed to one another here, are together and united and healed as one, as God's people together. The curse of Babel is reversed and we are one people. Remember in Genesis uh, the people thought that they would build this, this, this tower and then they, their languages were um, confused and there was enmity between people. Well, here we see that that is healed. We catch a glimpse of that at Pentecost where everybody present had heard the good news in their own language, a sign of God's new people in Christ 
being from across all the divides of humanity. We hear that hope in Paul when he says that there'll be no longer Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor barbarian, slave or free, man or woman. That curse of separation is removed. We hear it in the various letters written to the early church, encouraging them and showing them how we are to live and love one another as this new people. It's our experience. As we struggle, what it means to be this diverse group of people who come together in Christ, bringing the wonderful treasures of our culture and our language and our backgrounds, but somehow being brought together in Christ. Uh, then it says there will be no night, but the Lord will be their light. And we shall see God face to face. You know, Jesus had uh, said, I am the light of the world. And here is that reality in the new Jerusalem, that Jesus provides the light. And this, picture of a reconcil- this is a picture of a reconciled relationship as God. Because of the lamb who was slain, we are now able to see God face to face. That separation due to sin and our fallenness has been cured and we are restored to God in fullness. We can know God's presence with us now by the Holy Spirit and we will know it in fullness when Christ returns. And as we looked at those two things of a reconciliation of people and a reconciliation with God, I couldn't but help but think of our church's mission statement as I looked at that passage. You see, our mission statement is that we are about connecting people with God and with one another. That's God's salvation plan. You know, that's what God's vision for us in the future is. And we are called to be ambassadors of that future reality now. One of the criticisms of teaching about an eternity with Christ it was, is that it was seen as an opiate for the masses. It was seen as keeping them happy and everybody happy with their lot and a way of just you know, stopping, keeping the social order in place. But this vision of eternity, this vision of the holy city does not do that. Rather, I believe it should spur us on to want to see that reality break in more and more into our world, into our world in terms of justice, to an end of poverty and want, peace and reconciliation. You know, it inspires that I have a dream of the Martin Luther Kings of this world. It causes us to have our eyes on the prize of God's preferred future, of God's kingdom come, soon to come in its fullness. You know, to ask the question, well, what if? What about transformed lives, transformed families, transformed cities, transformed countries, transformed society? Because the kingdom of God is breaking into our world now, even in the face of evil and suffering. And it says they will have God's name on their forehead and will reign forever and ever. Now, I don't think this means that there'll be tattoo parlors in heaven. You know, when we speak of the name of the Lord, the Old Testament refers to 
the character of God. His goodness, his justice, his righteousness, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. So it speaks of the nature of God being evident in the lives of God's people. That we will be sanctified, to use the big theological word. In Revelation, there is always the choice between worshipping God, and in this chapter again, John has to be reminded to worship God alone or worshipping the beast and the systems of this world. And you know, people have always thought of the mark of the beast as a physical thing, but I really believe that that mark is that it's the nature of the person will be on display. And it's going to be easy to tell whom they serve, as easy as a brand on their forehead. We often think about, also think about reigning with Christ as a sort of governance kind of role, but I believe, again, it refers to the kingdom of God being shown and lived out in us. You know, uh, that Christ will reign totally in us and through us, his people. The name of God, the nature of God, God's goodness will be reflected in, uh, in us as how we live. That's the last thing. It's an eternity lived with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. An eternal life where God's original plan for intimacy with God and unity between people is lived out. A new creation, a new Eden. And that's exciting and a wonderful vision to hold before us. Now I want to move on now to the next section of this chapter where Jesus himself speaks. We move from the last things to the last one. Revelation is first and foremost a vision of the risen Christ, the lamb who was slain. That is how the book starts, with John seeing the risen Christ standing amidst the lampstands, a symbolic way of talking of Jesus being with his people. In this case, specifically the seven churches in Asia Minor, he's with them as they wrestle with what it means to be God's people as they wrestle with uh, the difficulties that are happening from within and without. You know, he sees what's going on, and he calls them to change and to come to him. But also as we go through the book, it's Christ who is working out God's salvation plan for his people, even amidst the suffering and the antagonism of the world's systems. It is Christ that we see who will be victorious over the beast and the dragon. It is Christ who is on the throne eternally. It is Christ whom we shall see face to face. Verse 12, Jesus then speaks. And he introduces himself using the language of the Old Testament that was reserved for God, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And it's a way of saying the beginning and the end. He affirms that he will come soon. He will bring his reward with him. The words that he had spoken to the churches in the seven letters, a promise that those who remain faithful will be with Christ forever. Just as Christ is, was with them and is with us. And Jesus gives a beatitude. Blessed are those who have washed their robes. And throughout Revelation, this is a picture of people who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb coming to Jesus for forgiveness and then faithfully following him. 
They are the ones who will eat of the tree of life and live in the city. And in verse 17, Jesus affirms that the words of the vision of John are true. And he finishes again with using images from the Old Testament, that he is the, 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 the one who is the heir of um, the Davidic kings. He's the Messiah. He is the one that, that we are looking for. And the idea of Jesus coming so, soon, of course, needs some unpacking. Uh, because, uh, you know, here we are almost 2,000 years later, right? And while we've seen the Roman Empire come and go, there have been a parade of beast-like characters and their false prophets, and the dragon seems to still draw people away from God and be opposed to God's salvation plan and God's people. And, you know, you might even ask the question, well, was John mistaken? Were the early Christians mistaken when they thought that Jesus was coming back in their day? Uh, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he has to address the fact that people had stopped, start, stopped working and were simply waiting around, looking up in the sky, waiting for Jesus to return. And you know, belief about the end times has always been a matter of speculation and theological and practical tension in the church. And we've seen it uprise again recently with people shoehorning present-day happenings into the vivid imagery of John, you know, which is one of the reasons that we looked at Revelation now. But the word soon has the idea of being imminent and sudden. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's Gospel, echoed in Revelation, speaks of coming like a thief in the night, no one knowing the hour. No one knowing the day. The call for us is to be ready and to live ready. And in verse 10, the angel says, you know, people can keep on living, following the ways of this world, or they can turn to Christ and be faithful. But I don't believe that, that, is, but that, that um, the angel is being indifferent to people's lives. Rather, it's a veiled way of saying, you know, you can keep on doing what you're already doing. But you know what? Christ is coming soon. It's imminent. The time to choose is not some time off in the distance. It's now. The time to change is now. One of the other things that Jesus speaking last does is that it helps to realise what our focus should be. You know, many people read Revelation and other scriptures and they focus on the last things, the last days. But the message of Revelation is that our focus should be on the last one, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, on Jesus Christ. And we can get caught up with the speculation and the possibility and even the worry and the fear about these other things. But the way forward is, as the writer of Hebrews says, is to fix our eyes on Christ, the author, the beginner, and the perfecter, the end of our faith. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, the one who started a good work, the Alpha, is the one who can be trusted to bring it to completion, the Omega on the day of the Lord. Our focus is on the last one. Maybe that would be a good place to finish, but John does not finish there. 
he adds a few of his words to the end of his writing, to the end of his vision. He affirms that what he's written is indeed spirit-given, and then he invites his letter, listeners to come to Christ as well. In verse 17, he picks up the idea of come and says the spirit and the bride say come. And that's a, you know, reflecting come Lord Jesus. But it's also an invitation to the thirsty and to those who need to come to come and drink of the living water. It's an evangelistic plea. An offer even at this last hour that it's not too late. The offer of salvation for all is open. The thief on the cross who asked Jesus to remember him today when he came into his kingdom is an example of that. You know, and if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the invitation is to come and to find life-giving water and known and be known by Christ. Don't put it off. Jesus is coming soon. There'll be people who love to pray with you after the service. Come and see them. Come and say, you know... I want to give my life to Jesus. And then John finishes off his writing by doing a couple of things. The first is in verse 18 and 19, he gives a warning to people not to add or take away from the scroll. And we're not used to apocalyptic literature, so we don't really hear it here, but this is a traditional way that such literature concludes. Um, there's, two, there's two endings to normal apocalyptic literature. Uh, one is that the, um, the writer of the vision is often told to seal it up for the future. Now, scholars have often argued that uh, this is, was a way of being able to comment on what was happening at the time and make it sound as if it was written a long time ago to give it the air of sort of authenticity particularly as most apocalyptic literature was attributed to great figures of the past. But here John identifies himself as the writer, and he's told not to seal this up because what is written is starting to happen in the then and the there. And it picks up the idea of prophecy being God's word to the people of that time and that place. And of course, because it's God's word, it speaks to all times and places and awaits a future ultimate fulfillment. Um, it also, in apocalyptic literature, that kind of almost reads as a copyright, you know, a copyright sort of mark. Don't add or take away from this. Now, some people have suggested that this warning about adding or taking away from the scroll being placed at the end of Revelation and at the last chapter of the Bible is that it speaks to the closing of the New Testament canon and an end to prophecy. But that doesn't really fit. You know, I'm sure that John would not have had any idea that his scroll to the churches in Asia Minor would be the last book in our Bible. Nor would he have had any idea of a New Testament canon at all. It's just simply the, the way in which apocalyptic language uh, literature ended. But it does remind us that this is a prophecy and it's also apocalyptic literature. And then John finishes off his writing as you would any letter of that day with a blessing. And I want to conclude today by focusing on his last words to us. John gives us his response to all that he's seen and all that has been shown to him. You know, 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Or Maranatha, come, Lord, Lord Jesus. A hopeful cry. And yes, we echo, come, Lord Jesus. And when we read Revelation, when we see the wonder of what it means when Christ's kingdom will be consummated, you know, it gives us that attitude and a posture for living. Living with a hope, a hope-filled expectation. Our eternal hope in Christ gives us the strength to face present-day suffering. That come Lord Jesus is not just an idol looking off into the distant future. You know, it's rather one which transforms into the prayer of today. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. You know, it's our future hope, but we are ambassadors of that hope now. We are ambassadors of the reign and the rule of Christ in the world now. We look for hope for Christ and his reign to break into the realms of this world now, knowing that there's a great future fulfillment. And then John signs off with a blessing. And it could easily be simply seen as a nicety or a formality, uh, you know, a yours sincerely, whether we're sincere or not. But here at the end of this amazing, exciting, challenging letter, we have the blessing. And we are blessed with, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Be with all of you. Amen. You know, I am confident that we won't be disappointed with eternity. Jesus will knock it out of the park. You know, because it is an eternity with Christ. And what gives me confidence is the promise of Scripture and the promise of Jesus that he will return. But also the fact that we have Jesus' abiding presence with us now. We are blessed with the presence of the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. Now in this world, in this time, in this place, as we go through the dark times, the joyful times, we are blessed with the, with the lamb who was slain, who is alive now, present with us as we face our end, or the uncertainty of new starts and fresh journeys. We have Christ present with us in difficult situations as we face beasts and their false prophets and the dragon, or even just simply the dragging on of day after day. This eternal hope we have started in Christ, coming and living amongst us. And his death on the cross is, uh, you know, it continues with Christ's abiding presence with us by the Holy Spirit and the sure knowledge that Christ is faithful and will be the one who holds our eternal destiny in his hands. He will come again to set all things right. Amen? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And in response, let's stand and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord by singing the hymn, At the Name of Jesus, Every Knee Shall Bow. Let's stand and sing.